On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish, Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Would you bow with me as we pray this morning? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. Eyes to see you. Illuminate our thinking so that we will understand the meaning of this, this incredible miracle performed by Jesus. And Father, I pray that as you give us understanding, you would transform our hearts so that we will obey. That we will understand what this teaches about who Jesus is and how we are to respond as followers of the Christ. Accomplish these things for the glory of your name. For it is through Jesus our Lord we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. One of the beauties of language is that it can communicate a simple truth in many ways. For example, if somebody were to say something to you that you deemed impossible, it would be very easy to say, No, I think that's impossible. And you would communicate clearly your thoughts. But the beauty of the English language is this. You can communicate that same negative answer in a variety of ways, okay? So, do you think Pastor Mark would ever play in the NBA when pigs fly? Do you think that he would ever become a professional golfer when fish climb trees? You get the point. Now, you could add to those whole, uh, that, that whole list of, of negative answers, yes, that could happen when water turns to wine. But wait a minute, that's happened. Jesus kind of blows that impossibility out of the water as we read here in this gospel. This, the first miracle that Jesus did. And we read in verse 11 that this isn't just referred to as a miracle, this is the first of his signs. The gospel of John records seven miracles, seven signs that Jesus did. John is the only one of the gospel writers to use that terminology, sign. And I think he does that to remind us as we read it that the miracles are not an end unto themselves. If we stop only at talking about the miracles and never discuss what they tell us about Jesus, we have missed the point. Because the miracles are simply signs to tell us who Jesus is and what we should do in response to who Jesus is. 
if we stop at the miracle, we've missed the point. That's like looking for a restaurant when you're driving down the road and you want someplace quick to pull into, eat, and get out of. And so you think fast food, McDonald's will do. So you drive down the road and there, lo and behold, you see the sign, the golden arches illuminating the sky. Well, do you pull up and stop at the sign and never go into the restaurant? No. The sign is there to tell you where the restaurant is. So these miracles are signs to point us to Jesus so we will go to him and feast on who he is. Now the purpose of this sign and all the signs is revealed in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. So this sign as well as the others are there to show us his glory. Now think about that for a moment. The glory of God really encompasses two things. It encompasses, yes, His majesty, His radiance, His appearance. But it goes more than that. The glory of God is first of all about the actions that God performs. The actions that God performs tell us about who God is. So look at what Jesus has done here. It's very clear that He instructs the servants, fill these jars with water. And then he tells them, draw some of the water out and take it to the master of the feast, who is surprised that this is now some of the best wine that he has tasted. But notice the caveat. Verse 9, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Jesus has shown the power of God in transforming water into wine. Now think about that for a moment. How amazing that is. And the very fact that this is the first sign that Jesus did. He shows the power to transform substances. Because when you think about it and we say it glibly, he turns water into wine, that's quite amazing. Look up at the screen and you're going to see the chemical makeup. On the left is water, H2O. Two molecules of hydrogen, one of oxygen. Very simple. On the right is a chemical formula I'm not even going to try to decipher. That's the chemical formula for wine. So Jesus takes that on the left, H2O, and turns it completely to that on the right. He transforms it. I don't know much about the making of wine other than this from what I read looking on Wikipedia last night. You take crushed grapes and you add yeast and you wait. And the longer you wait, the better they say it is. Well, guess what? Jesus in a moment without even saying a word, transforms normal everyday water into something that is sweet and joyous. That is the power of God to transform. It is only God who can do such a thing. So in this act, Jesus is revealing himself to be God because it is only God who can take, for example, according to 2 Kings chapter 4, can take containers filled with a little bit of cooking oil and make that oil continue to be replenished over and over over and over again until they run out of containers. Only God can do that. It is only God who can send ravens carrying food to a prophet who is in the wilderness alone and provide his food there when there's no other way to eat. Only God can do that. Only God can make manna appear on the ground in the morning to feed over a million people. Only God can do that. Only God can transform things that are one substance into another substance because God creates something out of nothing and he can take that something and make anything he wants out of it 
So Jesus in this moment is giving testimony that he is God incarnate with the power to transform things. But then he goes a step further. Not only is God's glory manifest in what he does, God's glory is manifest in his character. The book of Exodus, when Moses prays, God, show me your glory. And God says, I'll make my glory pass in front of you. You will see that I am, am, am gracious to those upon whom I will gracious. I will give loving kindness. He shows him his character. So how does this show us the character of God? In this way. Notice the circumstance. Mary, his mother, comes to him. Verse 3. They have no wine. Now we don't know whose wedding this is. Some speculate that it's maybe a relative somewhere down the line of, of Jesus because Mary plays such a prominent role in this. The question is, why would she be so concerned if she didn't have a stake in it in some way? And here's the problem. To run out of food or wine at the wedding reception was a huge social faux pas. You read about the customs of the wedding. The Jews placed a lot of emphasis on weddings. After all, the very first wedding of Adam and Eve, God was a guest and presided over it. So they took weddings very, very seriously, and rightly so. But they were a joyous occasion. A joyous occasion that would last for two weeks. Thank God some traditions have changed. For two weeks, they would come and celebrate this gathering this, this union of husband and wife. People would take vacations and come and stay the whole two weeks. And so it was the groom's responsibility to provide for the food and the wine. And so that the party would continue for even up to two weeks. And now, here, this groom has run into problems. He's run out of food. He's run out of drink. And so Mary comes and he spe she speaks to Jesus. And Jesus acts. You know what that tells me? This is the God of the universe who is not only concerned for the blind who cannot see and the lame who cannot walk, he is concerned about someone and even in something like this, he takes action. It shows us the gracious character of God that is involved in life, that is concerned about the ups and the downs. The God that knows when a sparrow falls to the ground and dies is concerned in the ups and downs of your life. This is a revelation of God's character and who He is telling us that God is not just distant. He knows you. In those moments when you are down and feel like the outcast and worried, God is involved. He's involved, I believe, to in His own time transform the situation. Because there's a third thing, another aspect of the glory of God. We have seen his action, we have seen his character, and now we see Jesus as the fulfillment of this. This action is very unique. Think about all the things that could have been chosen for John to record miracles of Jesus. None of the other Gospels include this, so John is working on a different, different wavelength altogether. Wouldn't it have been neat to start Jesus' ministry by, by returning sight to a blind man? Jesus did that, but that's not where John starts. Wouldn't it have been neat to maybe include a story of where Jesus enables a paralytic to walk? That would have been amazing. That would have been a great place to start. But that's not where John started. Or what about raising the dead? That's a pretty good miracle to begin with. It's not where John starts. 
I think John starts here for two reasons. First is this. As he shows the glory of God in Jesus, he shows his actions, his character, and that Jesus is the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, the Old Testament told, teaches us that the Messiah will rectify wrongs. He will set the evil things right. He will indeed come with justice in his hands. But we need to remember this also. When the Messiah comes, he will come bringing joy. Up on the screen, you're going to see a passage from Isaiah 25. A passage that is viewed as a messianic prophecy. And it says that on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food full of morrow, of aged wine well refined. So the Lord of hosts on this mountain for all peoples is going to have this huge feast with food. And notice it's emphasized twice. Rich food and aged wine. Joy. This is a, a celebration. And then he says, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. What is that veil? The next screen tells us. Verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus, by turning the water into wine, is making a statement that he is the Messiah who fulfills this passage. He is the one who brings the feast. He is the one that brings joy. And even though it is looking to the future, Jesus is inaugurating the Messianic kingdom by saying, I'm bringing the joy that you hunger for that is why one of the fruit of this part of the fruit of the spirit is joy that overflows in the life of the believer this is what we are looking for this should cause us to break into song and shout out singing celebrate good times come on yes cool in the gang come on now don't act like you don't know that this is this is joy why the Messiah has come and he's reversing things he's destroyed death he's healing the sick he is bringing joy even to those who seem like social outcasts he is saying you have reason to rejoice because I have come and I am the Messiah that's the happy ending we long for we long for happy endings that's what we want in life there was a movie that came out a few years ago, and I've not seen it, but I did read a summary of it in preparation for this. 2013 film called August, Osage County. It's a story of a family, an extremely dysfunctional family. They gather in August in Osage, Oklahoma. It's hot, it's sweltering, and the film chronicles this family as they get together and they begin fighting and worse, it goes to worse and worse and worse. Kids leave angry and the film ends with the matriarch weeping, being held by a housekeeper. And she's all alone. Now, if you went to see that at the movie though, that's not the ending you saw. Because right after that scene, it cuts to a picture of Julia Roberts standing in a field watching horses run through a sun setting and she is smiling and this happy pop music is playing. It ends on this happy note. But the director said that's not how it was supposed to end. Well, why did you insert this ending, this one little clip? He said because test audiences hated the original ending. 
They wanted to know there was happiness at the end. That even though things fell apart, that at least someone found happy. We long for the happy ending. And the scripture tells us that for those in Christ, that Jesus Christ gives you the happy ending you long for because He is the Messiah who brings these things to pass. And the water turned into wine leaves no doubt as to who He is. Now we could stop there and say those are great things to know about God, but this also challenges us. You see, this passage teaches us something about what it means to follow Christ. We take those truths of Christ. And to be a disciple means this. We recognize that true purification is found through Jesus. See, there's another reason I believe John included this miracle at the very beginning. This miracle set the course that led to conflict with the Pharisees. I want you to notice in verse 6. There were six stone water jars there, but... John doesn't stop there. He adds another detail for the Jewish rites of purification. You have to understand that to the Jews, you didn't want to touch something that was unclean. And the jars for purification were there not just so you could wash your hands for hygienic purposes, but so that you could wash your hands so you wouldn't defile the food or anyone else around you. It was about purity and being right with God and others. Now, when Jesus teaches them or instructs them to fill the jars with water very subtly he's taking a jab at that system and more than a jab he's starting to deliver a knockout blow because once those pots were filled with water with wine they could no longer be used for purification so in a very subtle way Jesus is saying what you're looking to to purify your heart before God and others will not do the trick. This is setting the table to understand that true purification, what we hunger for, and being right with God and right with others, is found in Jesus, not in any man-made system. Not in rules, not in legalistic lives where we set up a standard of, of behavior that we seek to live by and make everyone else live by. Jesus says, that will not do it. Only God can change a heart and make us pure before Him. And deep down, we are all hungering to be pure and to be right before God. We are looking for ways to soothe our consciences so that we can be pure before God. Did you know in 1811, the United States government established what they called the Conscience Fund? They began receiving letters that had money in them from soldiers and other people who had stolen things from the government and their consciences wouldn't let them rest to date over 11 million dollars has been given to the conscience fund you know what that's about trying to find purity from past sins and Jesus is here telling us man-made ways won't do that how can we be purified from past sins and present sins and future sins it's Jesus that upon the cross when he died, he took our guilt and our shame and our sins to make us pure. He suffered the penalty that we deserve so we could be right with God. And this begins setting the foundation to understand that. These things we look to to give us purity won't. And Jesus says now they're null and void, replaced by a greater joy. 
So this begins pointing us to Jesus as the way to be pure. And the second thing we take away is this. We see a model of faithful discipleship. People have often questioned this interaction between Jesus and Mary because it seems odd, almost harsh. First, Mary is never called by name in this. She's referred to as the mother of Jesus. Then in verse 4, when Jesus says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? It often causes people to scratch their heads and think, Is Jesus being hateful to his own mom? Well, while woman could be a common way to address people, it wasn't the common way a person, a child, would address his mother. So what gives here? I think in this instance, we are being shown a model of discipleship. Augustine of Hippo wrote about this, saying that Jesus had to show Mary that her standing as his mother gained her no special privilege with him. Mary comes to Jesus as any other disciple. And it's a reminder to us that we are all equal as disciples of Jesus Christ. There's no special privilege. Even his mother comes to him, but his, she comes to him and gives us a model of faith. Notice the pattern. They have no wine. What does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. In other words, this isn't the moment to really look at the cross. However, his actions begin the path to that. But look at Mary's response. Do whatever he tells you. See, there's a pattern that is seen in the Gospel of John. Request, difficulty or challenge in meeting that request, and then persistence. Mary shows a bold faith that believes Jesus can act, and then she steps out and shows faith that he will. This becomes a model for discipleship. Lord, I ask this of you. And it doesn't seem that anything's happening, but Lord, I will keep asking. So it tells us that the model of discipleship is trusting the Lord and obeying Him. And what brings us together is the word third. Look in verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee. Look over to the end of the chapter now. Look, if you will, At verse 19, Jesus has said he will rebuild the temple. Notice what he says, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about his resurrection from the dead. This chapter is the only place in the Gospel of John where third or three is used. It's used at the beginning of this, these two instances from the life of Jesus and at the end. It, it books in them. So that everything that is, happens here is to be understood looking back through the resurrection. How does Jesus bring us joy? Resurrection from the dead. How does Jesus show the character of God? He conquers death. How do we find the strength as disciples? Because he who raised Jesus from the dead will see us through. So we understand this miracle of water into wine as pointing us to the resurrection that brings about the transformation we long for. Are you following this Jesus? This one who can transform things. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me if you will.